Well, throughout the year, in and out, we've been in this series on Abraham in Genesis, verses chapters 12 through 22. We're starting to arrive towards the end of it, and we've entitled this series, A Call to Faith. And there's a danger, whenever you look at the Old Testament people, is to take these wonderful heroes of the faith and make them merely models. Abraham acted like this, therefore we should act like this. And I want us to step back and say, that's not all that we have. It's important that we see, yeah, there's some ways we want to model Abraham, and there's other ways we don't. Amen? We've seen that in its ups and downs throughout the year. So it's important for us to look not only at these characters as flawed people, but that's the good news. Because in Jesus Christ, he's been justified by faith. We, too, are justified by faith. Therefore, let us walk in the faith that he had as well. And today, in the world that we live in, and now that Cleveland has been cordoned off. You can't get downtown now. You know, and all the things of the convention and the possibilities of violence, and we've all been praying for the city, and I invite you to join us tonight. At the end of our Avon Lake group, we're going to go Facebook Live. If you're a Christchurch Facebook friend, we're going to go Facebook Live, and we're going to just pray for the city and pray that the church would shine as a light to our communities that uh, we'd be as famous for Jesus as we are for the Cavaliers right now. And so I encourage us to look, because we have some practical aspects of our text today that help us to be a person of peace, because Abraham is now the man of faith that God's called him to, but he's got one more test to go, which we're very familiar with, which we'll start next week. But for today, we see a shining example of of a man of peace that we too And these tumultuous times can be people of peace. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. You can find it in the back of your bulletin if you're visiting with us. Because what we're going to see today is what true faith looks like lived out into a community. First, we see that true faith is evident. True faith also, secondly, seeks mutual interests within the community. And last, it prioritizes worship. It's evident. It seeks the mutual interests with those it lives among. And last, it worships. So let's look at this together. First of all, true faith is evident. Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. You see, it was evident to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, that God is with Abraham. It's like when you see a young athlete who is a skillful athlete, and he or she is head and shoulders above their competition, she's got it. It's like a dancer who, after years and years of training, makes this incredibly difficult dance look so easy. She's got it. Or maybe it's that IT person in the office who has that computer science degree, and you've been working hours and hours at a problem in your computer. They come by drinking coffee, they press a button on your, on your keyboard, and it works all of a sudden. And you say, that's all you had to do? He said, yeah, that's all you had to do. Well, they got it, and you don't. And that's me. See, 
The reality is true faith is evident to those around us. There was something so striking about the abundance of God's blessing to Abraham that Abimelech noticed it, and he wanted to get on good terms with Abraham. I think it begs the question for us, if our wor- I wonder if our presence in the world today as Christians is like that to our neighbors. We're certainly, we, as we have learned like Abraham, he has his faults. Because remember, just in chapter 20, he, he lied to King Abimelech that Sarah was his sister. So Abimelech certainly knew Abraham's faults, but there's evidence of true faith in Abraham, and he wants to be at peace with him. And I wonder if that's the same with us. And it's not so easy at times, I know, but true faith makes the world sit up and take notice. Uh, You know, the world doesn't applaud our faith. I know that. You know that. Sometimes it marginalizes us. Sometimes it persecutes us. But the truth is, as we have learned through Abraham, as we have learned even through Jesus, says, you're salt through fire. It means the world is not always going to applaud. And it's going to be tough. But the reality is, without hardships, without some affliction, we would be trivial, superficial belief, without depth or substance. It would be a shallow faith. The fact is, God works in and through our troubles to mature us in the faith. And that is Abraham at this time. In such times, one cannot help but notice the blessing of God on a believer. Otherwise, the church around us would ignore us. So it begs the question for each and every one of us to ask this morning, is there enough evidence for the blessing of God in our lives, be it for good or for ill? Is our presence where we live, work, and play an obviously good thing? Would the loss of Christ's church in our community be missed at all? I think it's worth us asking, and I think we would be missed, but it's worth us to honestly ask, Because if not, then all our complaining about the world and the culture we live in, the first would would not have done for the first thing for establishing the valid ground on which we influence it or improve it. There's a great story about a young American engineer from Knoxville, Tennessee, who was sent by his company to an electronics plant in Ireland. It was a two-year assignment, but he didn't want to leave his beloved Sally Mae. And it was a two-year assignment that he accepted because it would enable him to earn enough money to marry her upon his return. And so when he got home, he'd be able to buy a down payment for a beautiful house on Rocky Top, Tennessee. He couldn't wait. So they corresponded often, but as the long weeks went by, he noticed these beautiful Celtic women. You know, they also could sing. And he, you know, he started to wonder about himself. And she began to wonder about Bobby Joe. And so the young engineer wrote back, declaring with a lot of passion that he was paying absolutely no attention to the local girls. I admit that sometimes I'm tempted, but I fight it because I'm keeping myself for you, dear darling. So in the next mail, he, he received a harmonica. He didn't know how to play the harmonica. 
But she said, I'm sending this to you so you can learn to play it and take your mind off all those pretty Irish girls. And so the engineer replied, thanks, darling. I'm practicing it every night so I can play just for you when I return. return. And I'm thinking just of you. So after his two-year assignment, he gets back home. Both families are all there. He's coming back to the company headquarters in Knoxville. He gets off the plane to be reunited. He goes out to embrace Sally Mae, and she says, hold on there, Bobby Joe, before any serious kissing and hugging, play that harmonica. <laughs> you see, the world wants to see evidence. They want to know it's true. So we can give evidence. We can give evidence by showing up to work on time. We can show evidence by doing excellent in our work. We can do good evidence by being open to our coworkers and our neighbors' needs and meeting those needs. And as we do so, say, God bless you. You know? Be intentional in getting to know those around us in our lives, dear friends. But you see, the reality is it's never a good excuse from us Bible-believing culture that we come from to be obnoxious, rude. Yeah, we're theologically right. But do we turn our eyes to the blind eye to the obvious issues that are around us, being overly pushy at times? See, the fruit of the Spirit is at work in our lives. And we are in a, an increasing way loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlling people. That's not a litmus test, but it is evidence that God is at work in our lives. So I want to encourage us to ask that question and throw ourselves at the mercy of God on the cross. That's the first thing. Second thing is true faith seeks mutual interests in the community in which it lives. Not only does Abimelech respect Abraham, Abraham respects Abimelech. This is a pagan king. But he deserved respect because Abimelech is an image bearer of God, and Abraham knows it. And it's not hard to see why Abimelech deserved respect. He was a man of integrity, kindness, and he wanted a good relationship with Abraham. Abraham did have his own tent city, by the way. He did have his own army, too, by the way. So, you know, he, he needed some respect. So they're coming together here on the basis of shared interests, the peace and justice of their region. And so do we. But unfortunately, in so many circles in the, in the Bible-believing culture of the church, there's a belief that if we can't agree on everything— then we can't do any type of common grace ministry in our community together at all. If we can't agree spiritually, politically, or socially, then we turn inward, we huddle up, and we affirm one another and say, yeah, we're right, they're wrong. We tend to do that and scorn those who don't agree with us. But friends, that creates an ineffective witness to our community, and it makes us just an angry community, and it can't last. There's a great scene at the end of the last battle, where the children go into this shack with the company and a bunch of dwarfs. And so they're going outside the shack into utter paradise, and they're trying to get the dwarfs to come out of the shack. 
But for the last few chapters, Lewis reminds the children that the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. We are for ourselves and nobody else. And so many churches are, we're for ourselves and not for a blessing in our community. You see, the reality is we're not going to agree on everything. I mean, we don't agree with Bay Prez on everything. We don't agree with our Calvary Baptist brothers and sisters on everything. But we agree on the main things together. And we put those secondary issues to the side for the sake of the good news of the gospel. And you know what? Even with our neighbors who don't believe, we can probably find some common ground because there's some needs in our communities that we can meet together with them. And in so doing, we open up ourselves and them to hear the good news of the gospel perhaps down the road. And in Abraham and Abimelech, we see a desire for justice. Don't we want that? Don't we want that? And they, they captured it well. Look, verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. You see, on the basis of their previous agreement for peace, Abraham now raised this matter of his well being taken over by this pagan king's servants, knowing that if it wasn't cleared up, it would create tension between them and possibly fighting down the road. And so true faith, as Abraham's, turns outside, is willing to call the wrong in the society for what it is, not adapting the world's tactics, but moves quietly and respectfully to promote peace and justice in the name of Jesus. See, the true church must always strive to be what is in fact what it is, the chosen people of God to be a blessing to the world around it. You notice Jesus saying at the end of the gospel reading, you're the salt of the earth. That's Matthew 5. You know, Jesus probably said these things more than once in his three-year ministry, folks, by the way. So you have a different time in Mark's reading than it is in Matthew's. And so Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Salt does much good to flavor our food, but it's no good if it's lost its saltiness. Light does much good, but if it does no good, the light cannot shine out. We are to be and to do both things as Abraham is doing here. But we all recognize in our own strength we can't. It's not something you muster up. You look at the cross and the great love that we have in Jesus because to be a person of peace, you have to recognize that you are a person of peace because you're at peace with God in Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture says. Just like Abraham was justified by faith, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, therefore, since you are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we're at peace with God, we can be a people of peace wherever we're found. And so what we have here is the first treaty. It's the Treaty of Beersheba. And because we have that treaty, what does Abraham do? Because he's exhibited such faith right now. He really seems to have it, doesn't he? He's got one test. Stay tuned for next week. But what he does here, as he seeks the mutual interests of his community, he prioritizes worship with our Lord. Verse 33, 
So Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham's planting a tree near the well in Beersheba is a symbol of fruitfulness and faithfulness of God to him. And everybody who walks by, it memorializes God's faithfulness and prosperity to Abraham. It also demonstrates his rootedness in this land, which is called Beersheba, in in, uh, the Philistine region right now. And notice what it says, he sojourns for many days there. Because Abraham never had a permanent home in his whole life. But he was at peace in Philistia. And he uses the name El Olam as a divine designation. And it's very unique in scripture. It means the everlasting God. And it's a beautiful description of who God is and what he has done. And it has to do with the eternal nature of God to all the events that we have seen in chapters 20 and 21 to Abraham. And these events with Abimelech, both Abraham's failure in Abimelech and now Abraham's success with Abimelech, serve as bookends to the great promised child that has now come, as demonstrated to his faith. This grading and polishing of Abraham, good old Abraham, has been going on for years now. And now he's shining bright. And so what does he do? He worships. Because Christ is his peace, he is at peace with God and he worships. May we be people of peace and let us worship in our own personal worship times, in our corporate times as we gather. Everything we do is worship. You're worship as you're seeking mutual interest of our community. You're worshiping as you show up to work on time and do excellent work. You're worshiping as you serve your wives well, men. As we women, we serve our husbands well. We serve our children well. Children, as you serve your parents well. It's all our lives is an act of worship. Because he's the everlasting God. He doesn't change. His love never changes. He's shown himself faithful to Abraham. He will show his faithfulness to us no matter what's going on in our culture. He's tried and true because of the love that's fulfilled as Father Abraham's greater son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for us. Archbishop William Temple said it wonderfully about worship. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of a conscience by his holiness, nourishment of my mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of my heart to his love, the surrendering of my will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all our actual sin. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's best stated with great brevity in the great hymn, O God, our help in ages past, our hope, for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Ladies and gentlemen, may I suggest that we throw ourselves once again at the foot of the cross, ask for God's mercy, because he gives it to his beloved. And recognize that if we just continue to grow in the Lord, we're going to be faithful. 
Our faith will be evident to our neighbors. They saw you get up at an inconvenient time on Sunday morning. You put on your nice clothes and you came to this place. They saw it. Keep going. Keep growing. Our faith is evident to our community. Let's continue to grow in that. Let's seek the mutual interest as we seek to serve in this new location. Lord, where are you at work? What needs can we serve? Our friends at Lakewood have discovered there's an incredible opportunity to reach out to the Muslim refugees that are coming. Friends, we're called to. And at the end of August, we're going to have Sonny Akhtar come and share his story for us. It's an amazing story to a dear Pakistani brother. It's beautiful. Let's seek mutual interests of the neighbors around us and let us worship the Lord together in our personal prayer closets, as we gather in all of our lives for his honor and glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can be salty people. That, Lord, we can season this area, and if we were to drop off the face of the planet, they would miss us because of your great love. And we can keep the peace by being people of peace. No matter how that they respond, we would respond as such for your honor and glory. And Lord, we can't do it in our own strength. Once again, we come to you and we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we would be people of the gospel, longing for greater strength with each passing day. For you do not call the gifted ones, you gift the called ones. And I thank you that you have called us, Lord Jesus. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.